Welcome to the Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud podcast. Willing to Listen is a grassroots volunteer group based in South Bruce, Ontario, that is dedicated to thoroughly investigating multiple aspects of Canada's proposed deep geological repository for spent nuclear fuel. I'm Sheila Wittick, and I'm so excited to have you join me as we delve into this controversial project. So this is part two of our conversation with Sean Wagner about corrosion and the NWMO used fuel containers. Even if the steel container eventually rusts after, you know, 80, 100, 200, 500,000 years, however long it takes, then then you've still got the zirconium from the fuel bundles in there. And zirconium, like the only thing that I know of that rusts less than zirconium is gold and platinum. Wow. There's a reason we use zirconium for those fuel tubes. Like zirconium yeah. is just, just like chromium, just like aluminum. It forms a very nice thick passivating layer and it's significantly less electrically conductive. It's thick. It, it's everything well, you really want. Like, and I completely like, believe you, it because if you see the fuel bundles before they go in the reactor and you see them after they've come out and it's not necessarily a little vacation spa in there, you know, like it's a pretty hostile environment inside a reactor it's really hot really high pressure they look virtually the same when they come out well ironically for the supposed environment that's in a dgr the ideal is that it would be effectively distilled water like you wouldn't get totally distilled water but you would get something with very low mineral content in the water there because you're supposedly in like a granite or a limestone or whatever mm-hmm. so you'd have it you'd have a very kind of pure water down there. That is exactly what's in a reactor. And a reactor is 300 degrees hotter. <laughs> yeah. And so that's, that's what those fuel bundles are meant to deal with. And for anyone here who is, you know, has a, 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 a nice shiny ring, cubic zirconium. <laughs> if, if anyone has a cubic zirconium ring that's listening, that's I hope mine what's are on- cubic zirconium. <laughs> uh, that hu- that husband's going to get ass kicking if they are. <laughs> but yeah, that's what's on the outside of those zir- of those zirconium fuel bundles is effectively cubic zirconium. Oh, cool! Like that's that's what it is. Hmm. Didn't know so, that. Yeah the the fuel bundles are basically completely coated in uh, a fake diamond. Yeah, and they're they're pretty sturdy. Those guys. That they are like it's ironic that they put the best layer of defense on the inside (laughs) for this dgr well and even then when you get through the zirconium there's still the ceramic fuel pellet there and ceramics don't dissolve all that easily either they do not they they really don't really is layer upon layer upon layer of really structurally sound things you know to try to maintain safety for as long as possible yeah and then you realize that that little tiny copper layer is supposed to last anywhere between 30 and 300,000 years. Well, and, and that's, you look and that's at the rest by these, like, um, that's by these numbers, right? From the yeah, paper we were just talking these, about. Yeah, so these, the NWMO the numbers, paper says even longer. Yeah, these, yeah, yeah. The NWMO paper says something like a million years or something like that. Because, yeah. and, and this paper is basically saying, you know, no, it's, it's probably about three times faster than we expect. So it's, you know, 32 300,000. Oh no. <laughs> yeah, it's still a really long time. Yeah. And there's other things that and there's other things that can impact how quickly corrosion happens. Because since corrosion is based on kind of how much energy a surface has, if you really want to prevent corrosion in a, in a system, 
the best thing to do is to have like a single crystal uh, coating on the outside because then there's no kind of changes in the local, what's called the surface energy levels of the material that you have. So, because okay. metal, metals are actually crystals. You can make crystals yep. out of them. And so if you kind of, if you do some materials work and you do some looking under microscopes, you can actually see these crystals in a properly prepared sample. And then you'll see a boundary around a crystal that's called probably not very creatively a grain boundary. And this is a part, <laughs> this, this is a part of the material where the crystals of each of these little crystals, they're, they're what's called their lattice doesn't align together. So you get a little bit of, you know, non-crystalline or amorphous material in there. And these are actually significantly easier for chemical reactions to happen on because they don't have all of their cardinal directions attached to another crystal, uh, attached right. to another uh, atom. So your corrosion will generally happen most quickly at these grain boundaries. So the larger you make the grain boundaries, the slower your corrosion goes. And here's another, here's another thing that I can explain to you. Have you ever seen those like street lamp posts that have those weird splotches on them? I don't know. I've never really paid that much attention to street posts, to be honest with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like like some some people here will remember seeing like it looks like a bare metal post and it looks like it's got these weird kind of like splotches on them they're about okay. i would usually about this big and they're really weird shapes and something like that and they're kind of they're the same color but they're kind of different okay yeah that that's called galvanized steel galvanized steel is just steel with some i think it's zinc or something that's kind of chemically plated on top of it but what happens is that they played it so that you get these really, really big grains. Those weird splotches that you see on it next time, if you look for something with it, that's a grain of single crystal zinc. Oh, okay. And this is, they make the grains as big as possible so that there's only very, very thin, small amounts of grain boundaries around for corrosion to kind of happen on quickly. And so it's a, it's a very cheap way of, preventing corrosion on cheap steel that isn't that you don't want to pay the money to make stainless right i probably have seen those i've always just assumed that they're dirty yeah <laughs> like well that's a weird spot to have a splotch of dirt yeah but yeah and and that's what it's for it's, Interesting. it's just another another mechanism of here's how corrosion works so we're gonna make it work in our favor right similar it's probably similar right to your hot water tank it has like a Oh my gosh, what do they call that? Like the diode that will corrode before it corrodes your elements? Yep. Yeah, that is that is called a sacrificial anode or a sacrificial That's cathode. it. So yeah, basically what happens is they have something that on the redox table is more wanting to give up its electrons and turn into an oxide coating than your element is. And so that's what allows you to protect it because you've got that thing in there that's corroding instead of your element. Right. Pretty smart design, really. Yeah. When when you understand the rules of the game, it's a <laughs> lot easier to take advantage of them. <laughs> it is true. Um, and so just to switch gears just a little bit, because I do want to cover, we talked about the accelerated corrosion. I'd like to just switch to the most recent NWMO paper, the one from 2020 by Peter Keach, okay. Bins Briggs, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Bahazin. So I'll link this one too in the comments for people who want to take a look at it. But I just kind of want to quickly talk about kind of what they found. 
it wasn't necessarily in response to the accelerated corrosion research, but I know that other paper out of Sweden had produced a lot of, a lot more research in regards to the copper corrosion in this specifically, which is a good thing, you know, because we do want to understand it. It's a pretty important part that it's playing in the overall scheme of waste isolation. Um, so if we could just talk about kind of what they found and how it's different or, you know, kind of sure. what you think about what they found. Again, sure. you know more about it than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, in that case, we can, if, according to my notes, we can basically skip the introduction in the abstract there and we'll move straight into their uh, oxic corrosion uh, page in section 2.1. Okay. So that's on, for everyone who's following along, that's on page two. So one of the things that I found that kind of stood out to me is their talk about pitting, which is that process where you have a single spot on your surface that corrodes significantly faster than anything else around. <laughs> Basically how we get that connection between the copper and the iron underneath it. So they're talking about, you know, their early plans allow for a tolerance of pitting, but that more recent reports are saying that copper corrosion is that only kind of general corrosion, that pitting is going to be something that doesn't really happen inside these surfaces. And one, and I can understand that some people would be like, oh, this is just hand waving. Like, why wouldn't pitting happen? And the reason that pitting happens is actually generally for pitting to happen, you need a flow. Because the problem with pitting in terms of regular corrosion is that with regular corrosion, you have material that hits the surface, bonds, reacts, and then kind of just drifts away or right. sticks or sticks and forms a passivating layer. But with pitting, you don't have this wide open space for new material to kind of come in from any direction. The deeper your pit happens, the less, the less of the opening that you have that actually allows material in. So for pitting to actually happen, you need a you need a flow of material to constantly be refreshing the material that's inside the pit because if you don't refresh the material that's inside the pit what's going to happen is it's just going to build up with those reactant products and it'll probably seal itself up because it'll prevent any new material that is able to do any reacting from getting to the fresh material underneath the okay. reaction products so the reason that they're saying that you know pitting is unlikely to happen is because you need that flow. You need a, a continuous flow of moving material in and out. And as, as we said, there are many layers of protection below and above the copper layer. Right. Like you've got, you, you don't only have the copper layer, but you've also got that bentonite clay that's around it. Uh, is this, uh, does the DGR also have like a ceramic cask around these? I don't uh, believe so. Okay, so it's, it's just in bentonite clay then. Yeah. So for anyone who has, like me, when I was hungover, accidentally put kitty litter in a toilet because they were, you know. <laughs> I'm sorry, dealing... kitty litter in the toilet. Yeah, yeah. Not my proudest moment, but I will. My defense is that I was massively hungover at the time when I was caring for someone else's <laughs> oh, cat. Oh, Sean. <laughs> so yeah, kitty litter is a form of bentonite clay, or at least the good ones are. Uh, and for anyone who has made the same mistake that I have, you'll find that kitty litter basically turns into a solid plug of ceramic at the bottom of that toilet really, really quickly. Yeah, that would be really hard to clean up. Uh, vinegar, actually. Oh, well, there vinegar, you go. 
vinegar is the way to do it because the, the clay doesn't really work well with higher acidities. So for everyone who makes that mistake later, make sure you have some vinegar nearby. It will drastically save your life. <laughs> oh boy, I'll have to but, make sure I tell all my friends with cats to keep a supply of vinegar. Yeah, it doesn't make it easy. It makes it easier to get rid of. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the bentonite clay is, uh, is a method of actually, not just a method of preventing water from getting there, but also a method of preventing water from flowing easily because it swells, it absorbs water, it forms a hydrate, and it really prevents water from moving very quickly because it's right on the surface of that copper. So there's no kind of free space for water to move. So any water that comes in, is basically going to be pressed up against the surface. So you won't have that flowing motion that is constantly resupplying fresh material into that surface that a pit actually needs to form. So that's, that's the reason that they're saying that this is why pitting is generally thought that it's not going to happen because you would right. need, you would need a, you would need a failure in the casting of the bentonite uh, casing around the copper in order to allow water to flow fast enough. And that's assuming that you can actually get water flowing that fast inside a DGR where, you know, the entire purpose is to find geology where water doesn't flow very quickly. Yeah, the, I'm, I think it's in this paper actually that we're looking at where they, they state that it's something like 5,000 years in sedimentary rock for the DGR to be saturated with water. And I'm like, that's astronomical. You know, everybody yeah. worried about, oh, we're going to dig the DGR and then it's going to flood with water. Have you looked at any of the numbers? Because it's going to take a long time. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's not going to, and there's, and that's 5,000 years for it to start corroding that because you yeah. have to get all that water in there to the actual surface. Yeah. So you've got 5,000 years for the water to come in however long it takes for it to get through all the bentonite. And then you've got 30 to 300,000 years for it to get through the copper. And then you've got, you know, God knows how long it takes for it to get through two inches of, two inches of steel. And yeah. then however long it takes for it to get through the zirconium. Yeah. And then, and then you need to get all that uranium back out. <laughs> yeah, right. It's a really long time. It's not going to happen. <laughs> but yeah, continuing onwards. So... The next actually really interesting part of this paper is in the next section 2.2. And that deals with the, the title of this is the gamma radiolysis induced corrosion of copper. So for some materials, a radioactive exposure can actually promote corrosion because as, as we were and this is more prevalent in materials that actually form a passivating layer because the passivating layer is what's preventing the rest of the material from corroding. So if you expose it to high energy radiation, what's, what can happen is you can actually break apart that passivating layer in certain spots and expose new material underneath and allow corrosion to happen in those spots. Okay. And and, but since copper is a passivating material, that might be a thing that happens with this. So what they're looking at here is what the potential for this kind of radiation enhanced corrosion is. And then in the second line of this entire section, the strength of the gamma field is not expected to be high enough to enhance corrosion. Just right. flat out, here's what it is. And then they say to actually enhance corrosion, you need actually very high gamma and radiation fields on the order of, by this reference, 100 gray per year. And a gray is equivalent to a sievert, but it's not biologically uh, specific. So people will have to 
kind of read up on what that difference is. A hundred gray a year, a hundred. I'm sorry. It's not even a hundred gray a year. It's a hundred gray an hour. I was going to say, I think it's an hour. That's crazy. A hundred gray an hour would kill a person in six minutes. Wow. Like that is, that is an obscenely lethal dose of energy. You wouldn't be building a DGR to house something that is releasing a hundred gray an hour. A hundred gray an hour is something that you would get inside a reactor (laughs) and maybe like the stuff that you pull out and put into the cooling pools. Like that is, that is an insane amount of radiation. That's mine. So yeah. And, and then the next line is saying add emplacement reference 30 year old fuel will produce approximately a modest one gray an hour. So that's 1% of what's required to actually cause gamma enhanced corrosion. And that's at the surface of the container. So that's not at the surface of the fuel bundle itself. That's at where the copper is. So, you know, probably about that far, that distance, five or six inches. And then that value will drop to a fifth of that within a century to a 50th of that within two centuries and to one ten less than 10 thousands within 500 years, because that's, that's how radioactive decay works. It goes away. (laughs) Yeah. Which is something else I think does get overlooked a lot in general with the DGR, you know, is this forever toxic, forever hazardous waste. It's actually not, it it gets less dangerous as time goes on. It's the one, it's the one that goes away. Yeah. Takes a long time, but it does get better. And then moving on, they're stating, you know, in humid air conditions, in humid air conditions confirms that radiation fields of this order are far too low to influence corrosion as these gamma fields produce no measurable corrosion damage beyond that observed in the absence of radiation. Now, some people might take claim with, you know, oh, they only did it in humid conditions. So, you know, it's not like what it would be when you're totally submerged in water. And that's because, as you were saying before, it takes 5,000 years for the DGR to fill up with water. Yeah. So 5,000 years means that it's the amount of radiation in there is going to be so much lower than even the initially too low value to induce radiation induced corrosion. Yeah. So it's, it's another argument that they make by cherry picking statements and not dealing with context. Right. Well, and this, the sad part is though, is that it, it's easy to do that, right? Cause there's the majority of the population doesn't understand what these papers say, you know, like yeah. I read it with like, not to sound like horn tooting, but I have two university degrees and I read some of these papers and go, what does that mean? You know, cause it's not what I studied. So I don't know what it means. Oh, I know it's, if, if you don't, it's, it's kind of a personal gripe of mine that so many different disciplines of science have diverged so thoroughly from each other that there's almost no, there's almost no common language between a lot of them, which really kind of inhibits understanding of topics outside of people's specializations and that's a big that's a big personal gripe of mine trying to write something that is informative but generalist enough that people who aren't specifically in your field can understand it is very difficult and Mm -hmm. even with something as common as corrosion in this it, it can be very very difficult to kind of get all that information across let alone to a layman if you're dealing with people who are yeah. Well, it, it's, 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 it's funny. We talked about that 
as a group talking about nuclear things, you know, that in the nuclear industry, we use terms such as likely clean, like something is likely clean, which basically means it means there's nothing on it. The chances of it having any contamination on it are so small that it's, it's zero virtually, but we can't say it's zero because, you know, natural radiation and stuff like that. So, you know, likely clean really does mean clean, but they can't say that. So then those in opposition will say, oh, it's only likely clean. So there's a chance, you know, and it's, it's yeah. wording like that, that does come across poorly when speaking to the public, you know, that, oh, this is likely clean. Well, what does that mean? Only likely. And I think it is trying to turn off the, the science side and speak yeah. more general. Yeah. But, and, but the problem is, is that a lot of, a lot of things, especially in terms of likely clean, because that is, that is a very kind of easy to understand why they say it like that because you have to deal with statistical likelihoods of things being like this but when you start dealing with statistics you understand that there's never any certainty in anything there's always you know that point zero 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 yada yada chance of something happening but you have to say it like that because you have to you have to have a way of quickly stating that to the best of our knowledge at you know whatever percentile chance that the statistics require this is how this object is going to behave and so you say likely clean and in that you said two words that to a person who understands what you're talking about replaced 50 words and it works for you guys but then you talk to the outside public likely stops being a measure of statistics and a kind of ham-fisted maybes yeah yeah it gets it does get really I don't say complicated but it does get hard you know for, for that communication gap I'll call it you know yeah it's it, it is it is a very it's a serious thing and it's one of the big problems with science communication these days because like you're trying to you're trying to be accurate but you're also trying to make it accessible and sometimes those are opposed positions to try and take oh for sure for sure but yeah but as we, as we move along with this paper, the next major section here is section 2.4, which is on page four. Yeah, page four. And that's right down at the bottom on the left-hand side under the anoxic corrosion of copper in the presence of sulfides. And as I, I mentioned sulfides a little earlier, that sulfur is a material that can actually cause corrosion. And sulfur is kind of one of the weirder things out there. It does a lot of stuff that is... I'm going to say not normal because sulfur is just one of the weirdest elements that you can really do chemistry with. Okay. You can, you can read through this entire thing here and it talks a lot about, it talks a little bit about sulfur chemistry and what's going on, but the main takeaways from this is right down at the bottom where they're talking about the likelihood of sulfur being in the environment and what its reactions are going to be. And they're saying that, you know, slow diffusion of sulfur, trace sulfur is considered to be the most likely case of long-term copper corrosion via general corrosion rather than pitting. So this is, this is the way that they see the copper coating failing in most cases is via sulfur coming into the environment moving through. Failure is not expected to occur for many millennia as sulfur concentrations in Canadian deep surface subsurface water are in the range of five to 90 parts per billion. Wow. So extremely, extremely low. Yeah. 
And so when you, with a reference volume of one micromole per liter, so that's, that's the average. So you have a range of five to 90, but the average is expected to be 34 parts per billion. So that's how much sulfur is in the, is in the water, but it's not free sulfur. It's, it's never, you never really get sulfur on its own in the environment. You get sulfates, sulfides, right. things like this. So they're already kind of bound up in certain things and that changes their reactivity with a lot of things. I, I can't really say how it changes it because as I said, sulfur is weird and it does a lot of things kind of weirdly, but in, in general, sulfur will behave, sulfur kind of behaves like a weaker version of oxygen. It doesn't pull electrons out of the surface as strongly unless it is also bonded with oxygen in things like a sulfite, like right. in sulfuric acid, because then you get these things. Then, then you start getting into this whole thing of like electronegativity of non-polar items so that their actual structure actually changes how much they pull electrons from. Right. It's a fascinating field, but it is far beyond the scope of what we can do in like an hour's Zoom call. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. There's, I, I find that that's just the way this whole thing is a lot of the time. It's complicated, so. Yeah. And so one of the things that they're stating here in this paper about sulfur concentrations in proposed DGR locations in the Canadian Shield or nearby, uh, any nearby locations in Canada is that the average amount of sulfur in deep ground, deep ground water is a hundred times lower than what is assumed in earlier work that people tend to reference. Wow. And then they state, you know, here's where the sulfur comes from. It could be biological or it could be, you know, long, long submerged geological formations or something like that. And so then they say that it is noted that we should be investing, investigating how sulfur interacts with these processes, because as they stated earlier, this is how we assume that, uh, the copper corrode that the copper coating will fail eventually. This is this is the most likely scenario that will cause it is sulfur because it is it's weird. Yeah. And it weird weird means it's hard to predict, which means that it's probably more likely to do something different. And the eccentric friend in the group. Faster. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody knows what that guy's going to do. Yeah, he could bring everyone presents. He could rub peanut butter in his hair. We we don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, and and as we were saying before, not knowing is kind of it's not knowing is not what allows us to do things pro do things the way we want because when we know all the rules of the system then we can plan we can make sure that things happen in our favor yeah so sulfur sure. is kind of sulfur is kind of the one that throws the wrench in the plans but as he was saying before there's very little sulfur in most places in canada underwater underground that's a good thing so exactly and really that's those are really the highlights that i found in that paper is that saying that, you know, gamma radiation isn't going to happen because we don't have enough radiation to actually cause it. Showing that, you know, pitting isn't going to happen because we don't have flow because we have this other barrier layer that is preventing it. Right. And then basically saying, here's how, in light of all of our other scenarios and all of our other protections, here's what is probably going to be the most likely cause of failure for it. This, this is... This is good science. They say, you know, here's what's here's what people are concerned about. 
here's the most likely scenario. Here's something that people are concerned about. Here's the most likely scenario. Here's what people might not know about. And in relation to everything else, this is probably what is right. most likely to cause the situation at the end. The only other question I, I have quickly outside of these research papers specifically, and I feel like I know the answer, but I should ask it for people who maybe don't. There was some studies done, what they are off the top of my head, at Yucca Mountain that we're talking about, you know, corrosion being accelerated and things like that. But Yucca Mountain is an oxic environment versus RDGR here yes. being anoxic. So like, does that actually make a difference when you're talking about corrosion processes? Actually, yeah, because that, uh, because oxic and anoxic are uh, other words for what we were saying before, re re redox. Redox reactions are what an anoxic and anoxic are. Oxic is a short form for oxidating, which means it has a high content of materials that will pull electrons out of any material that you store in there which will cause rust, which is what they're saying. An anoxic environment is closer to a reducing environment, which is something that will actually push electrons into a system and kind of force things more towards a, a metallic form. So we have in, in the DGR in Canada, since it is planned to be in an anoxic environment, it doesn't actually form oxides very quickly, if at all, depending on the local chemistry. So if it doesn't form oxides, then you keep that metallic structure of your container a lot longer. Right. And that's actually kind of another thing that was interesting when I was looking into the, the composition of the DGR canisters by having that bilayer design. Because when you have something that is a something like copper and then something that like a stainless steel underneath, these actually have, and I think I mentioned it before, that these actually have different mechanisms for what you need in order to cause corrosion in them. So something that can attack copper very well can't actually attack stainless steel very well. And something that can attack stainless steel very well can't actually attack copper very well. So by having that bilayer design, you actually require a change in circumstances outside of the object that you're protecting in order to actually maintain uh, a steady rate of corrosion into them. So having that bilayer design actually is vastly superior to a single layer because it means that you need you need the local environment to actually change in order right. to promote corrosion in both layers. Yeah, so and something crazy would have to happen. Something crazy would have to happen. Hmm. Good to know. It's a lot of good information. I'm going to have to split it up into two episodes. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad to provide as much information as I can. Oh, I like it. But yeah, that's all I've got for today. If you uh, ever come up with any other information you want to share about the project as it goes forward, let me know. Yeah, not a problem. Okay, I'll thanks so much I... for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Anytime. And that's it for this episode of Willing to Listen South Bruce Proud. I look forward to further investigating Canada's plan for spent nuclear fuel along with all of you. Thanks so much for joining me, and remember, we don't have to agree on anything to be kind to one another. Mm -hmm.